the night of November 18, 1986, an unusually severe winter storm hit central Connecticut. Driving conditions were difficult throughout the late evening and grew worse as the storm lingered over the Newtown new area. Snow and sleet blanketed the countryside while gusty winds knocked down trees and utilities. Electricity went in and out in the area for several hours during the night. In the nearby town of Southbury, public highway employees were called in to plow snow and lay salt on the icy roads. For the next few days and nights, snow plows and sanders worked continuously to keep the roads clean. One of the town's utility men, Joseph Hine, 37, arrived at the municipal garage at 11.30 p.m. on November 20th. He took the sander out and began to drop sand on Route 172, one of the major roads in the town. At about 12.30 a.m., he returned to the garage and picked up a snowplow. He began his route along Southbury's Main Street and continued for several hours, plowing snow and avoiding the many branches that blocked the roadways. At about 3.30 a.m., Hine plowed along the length of River Road until he came to the intersection of South Flat Hill Road. The snow and sleet were still falling and conditions were more like midwinter than late November. As soon as he passed the intersection, Hine saw a truck parked off to the side of the road. I would describe the vehicle as a U-Haul van, box van, one-to-one ton with dual wheels, he later told detectives. The box of the van was off-white or dirty white, square type, and the cab was orange colored. Its lights were off and the roll-up back was closed. As he got closer, Hine saw that the truck had a large wood chipper attached to its back. The chipper seemed old and well-used. Just as he passed the U-Haul, he saw a man standing near the driver's door who suddenly began to walk to the rear of the truck. The man motioned for Hine to pass him, which he did. Hine continued to plow down River Road. Two hours later, at 5.30 a.m., Hine plowed River Road from the opposite direction. As he passed the Glen Road area, he saw the same U-Haul with the attached wood chipper once again. I didn't see anyone in or around the truck or the chipper, he told investigators, but as he passed it, Hine noticed something different. The back of the box was open, he said later, and I could see some wood chips inside. He also saw wood chips along the road. Hine continued to plow as he watched the U-Haul slowly disappear in his rearview mirror. That was strange, he thought to himself, that a person would be out so early in the morning in the middle of a storm, chopping wood. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote. This is your host, V. On December 1st, 1986, the Newtown Police Department in Central Connecticut received a phone call from Keith Mayo, a local local private investigator. He said that his client, Hella Crafts, had recently disappeared and he feared that she may have been murdered by her husband, Richard Crafts. Mayo was adamant and insisted that the Newtown Police investigate the crime immediately. Mayo said that according to his information, 
Helen never left her home on November 19th to drive to Richard's sister's house in nearby Westport. But Helen never showed up at the sister's home and hadn't been heard from since that day. Her car was later found in an employee parking lot at Pan Am Airlines at Kennedy Airport. Newtown detectives knew Richard Crafts very well. He was an auxiliary police officer in their department since 1982 and was a familiar figure around the police station. He had a reputation as a somewhat rigid patrolman who took his limited responsibilities very seriously. Because when don't they? When investigators interviewed Richard on December 2nd, he confirmed the story and said that on the night before Hella disappeared, that she was, quote, happy and showed no signs of being different or upset, unquote. He and his wife slept at home, and when they awoke that morning, Richard said the plan was for Tahela to go to his sister's house in Westport because they had no power due to the storm. He says, I have not heard from my wife since Wednesday, November 19, 1986. Initially, the police did not express too much concern over Helicraft's disappearance since missing persons reports are not rare. The overwhelming majority of the missing people usually turn up safe and sound after a period of time, and a wife who leaves her husband could be having marital problems or need some time alone. As a result, the Newtown Police Department did not prioritize the Helicraft's case, but in, a few, in the next few days, the nature and complexion of the case began to change. This is pretty common in really any of the episodes that we've done where we talk about missing people or when someone calls the police and reports an adult missing. The issue here is that with children, you know, if you meet the Amber Alert criteria, then everyone is looking for you because children, you know, we are more cognizant of the fact that children get abducted and not every child is a runaway, right? And even if they are, those children deserve to, for someone to care to, to find them and return them to their parents. The issue with adults is that as an adult, you can move anywhere you want to. You can do anything you want to do as long as it's legal. And unfortunately, there's not anything illegal about you deciding to walk away from your life and start a new one. There's not anything illegal about you deciding to move to a cabin in the forest and decide to live off the grid. And there certainly is anything illegal about you hopping on a flight and not telling your family or going to a hotel to hole up for a few days because you just don't want to talk to anybody. But what I've also learned through my research and this show um, and lots of other true crime shows is that even though the police say this very often, the amount of times where someone is reported missing and the family is adamant they have not actually just disappeared off the face of the earth, usually there was some foul play involved. I very rarely have I seen an actual instance when we're talking about these things where someone just went missing voluntarily and their family members are reporting them missing and they don't turn up right away. So if the family is normally adamant that this is not in character for this person, then it's very unlikely that they actually just decided to walk away from their life. But back to the story. Investigators interviewed friends of the Crafts family, which included neighbors and Hella's co-workers, and virtually all of them agreed on one aspect of her disappearance. Hella was a devoted mother who never would have left her small manner, her, her small children in the manner that was described. Friends also told police that Richard Crafts had a series of extramarital affairs, which were well known in that Hella had recently discovered that Richard had one girlfriend in New Jersey who he had been seeing for years. 
Before Hella disappeared, she told several people that she wanted to divorce her husband as soon as possible. This lines up with what we were just talking about. Very often, the family points out the fact that they're just, something doesn't feel right. I mean, and it's not necessarily that you have proof, but just that you know something about that person going missing does not feel like they just got up one day and decided to walk away from their life. And as her family describes Hella, and as we'll discuss her later, she just does not seem like the type of person who would leave her small children in their dad's care, which again, nothing wrong with dads taking care of their kids, but she just doesn't seem, she just would have never left her children alone like that if she wasn't working. So to disappear off the face of the earth and not have contact with her children is not something that would be in character for Helicrafts. Police also learned that Richard had offered several different versions of what happened to his wife, depending on who he was talking to. A neighbor asked um, what where Hella had been, and he told the neighbor that she had taken a trip to Germany and would be returning home soon. He told others that he had no clue where she went. On November 21st, just two days after her disappearance, he told Don Thomas, who was the family's live-in au pair, that Hella had to fly to Denmark because her mother was ill, and that she would be back on November 24th, just three days later. On November 29th, another friend, Lena Johansson, obtained Hella's mother's phone number in Denmark and called her. Her mother was not in the hospital and was in good health, and she said that, in fact, she did not expect to see Hella until the following April. Upset by this new information, Lena Johansson went to the police. She told them of the disturbing statement made by Hella to her in early November. Hella said, quote, If anything happens to me, don't assume it was an accident, end quote. So let's talk a bit about who Hella Crafts was. Hella Lork Nielsen, maiden name, was an only child and she was born in Denmark on July 7, 1947. She spent her childhood in a small village north of Denmark. Um, she's described by her family as vibrant, an outgoing child who enjoyed school, and she was one of few students who actually liked attending class. And with her happy disposition, they said that she made friends easily and continued to be well-liked into her adulthood. Hella had an amazing ability to understand and learn languages quickly. And during her teen years, she actually picked up French and English and was also able to understand some German, Norwegian, and Swedish. Hella attended college in England and later worked as an au pair in France. By the time she was 20, Hella was a beautiful young woman. Everyone talked talked about how stunning she was. She had blonde hair, high cheekbones, a trim figure, and everyone said that she had a warm, engaging smile that men flocked to. While Hella was living in France, she got a job as a stewardess for Capital Airways, and so she flew to Africa many times out of Brussels or, or Frankfurt and enjoyed the thrill of these new places she was discovering. So when she found out that Pan Am Airways was looking for a stewardess in the Copenhagen area, she applied for the job. Hella was one of eight candidates selected out of a group of 200 and was sent to Miami for her training. And since she had prior experience as a stewardess, it was easy for her to finish first in her class. And during the time, she stayed in Miami in a small motel near the airport. Um, and so she said that it was neat and comfortable and usually it's populated by airline employees because it was close to the airport. 
And it wasn't uncommon because they were all under the same roof as their male co-workers that stewardess often had romantic liaisons with pilots. She didn't tell you intimate things about the men she saw, said one friend. She was far too cautious to have been promiscuous, but she had a few lovers. Single stewardess liked the airline pilots both as future mates as just for or as a good time while they were on a layover. And on May 24th of 1969, while Hella was waiting at the motel for a flight, she met Richard Crafts, who was 31 at the time, and her life would never be the same. So let's talk about Richard Crafts. In the spring of 1969, Richard Crafts was a young, somewhat scruffy-looking airline pilot who wore his dark brown hair in an unkempt style that women seemed to find appealing. Um... So he was a little rough around the edges. And a lot of people say that Richard didn't really fit the stereotypical image of a pilot. He was five foot eight and just seemed rather ordinary, but there was a certain attractiveness about him. And so at this time, uh, Hella, not Hella, but Richard never seemed to be without a, a lady on his arm. He actually dated stewardesses almost exclusively and sometimes told these extravagant stories about his past, which included an ill-defined role in the CIA and alleged combat in Indonesia and China, which who knows? I, I did not verify any of this for the story, but considering that Beast tale seemed a bit outlandish to everyone else, I, I doubt that he was telling the truth. Crafts was born in New York City, December 20th, 1937. He's one of three children. He had two older sisters. His father, John Crafts, was a very successful businessman in Manhattan, and he dreamed of living in the suburbs. So later he purchased a spacious home in Darien, Connecticut, one of the most affluent communities in the state. And as a former World War I pilot and college football player, John must have been a formidable image to live up to for young Richard. But his father tried to do the best for his son. And although Richard attended the best schools, he really didn't excel. He later graduated from Darien High School without any type of distinction and tried college for a time, but dropped out and joined the Marines in 1956. In the military, Richard gravitated towards aviation and became proficient at flying helicopters. He trained on fixing winged aircrafts and quickly became certified as a pilot in the late 1950s. In 1958, Richard was transferred to Korea and Japan. And during his time there, he also flew planes for Air America, an organization that was a recognized branch of the CIA. So maybe not super exaggerations of what he was doing, but maybe a little exaggeration. Apparently, Crafts flew a number of clandestine missions, which included assignments to Laos and Vietnam. Although it is difficult to state with any certainty his activities during the time, Dr. Henry C. Lee writes in his book, Cracking Cases, that Crafts was wound during a flying mission over Laos. He, in the far, he remained in the Far East for a number of years, flying for Air America, and eventually returned to the United States in 1966. As a pilot, he had a little trouble finding work for the first few years. He flew for a variety of outfits until he finally secured a pilot's job in 1968 with Eastern Airlines, which at this point in 1968 was one of America's largest and busiest airlines. For the first time in his life, Crafts was making a comfortable salary. And though he had a busy schedule, he still had time for the social scene. So when he met Hella in 1969, he was already engaged to someone else. 
But Hella didn't seem to mind. She continued to see him despite his relationships with other women. And they actually maintained an on-again and off-again relationship for several years. They frequently fought, sometimes in public, but somehow always wound up back together. Hella's friends were suspicious of Crafts, and some showed open hostility towards him. Most of her friends could not understand Hella's attraction to Crafts when it was so obvious that she could have nearly any man that she wanted. In 1975, Hella became pregnant with Richard's child, and in November of that year, they married in New Hampshire. The following year, the newly married Crafts bought a one-level ranch home in the city of Newtown, Connecticut. Hella had her first child, and over the next few years, she had two more children. Afterwards, she returned to her job as a stewardess and hired an au pair, Dawn Marie Thomas, who was 19 at the time, to care for the children. Richard continued his job as an airline pilot and was frequently away from home. So together, their income exceeded about $125,000 a year. And in the 1980s, this was a big deal. It actually put them in the top 5% of wage earners in America at that point. Richard managed all the finances in the family, which enabled him to spend a great deal of this money that they were earning on his passion, collecting guns. He had already built an arsenal of weapons while single, but he per after he purchased a home, Richard finally had the space to store this collection. He owned several shotguns and dozens of handguns, including 9mm automatics, he had 44 caliber revolvers, 357 magnums, high-powered rifles, semi-automatic weapons, crossbows, hand grenades, and thousands of rounds of ammunition. It was enough to arm at least 50 men. He spent hours each week tending to this collection, cleaning and polishing and arranging these guns. And whenever there was a gun show in Connecticut or New Jersey, Kraft was there browsing the aisles and spending more money to spend to or spending more money on weapons to add to this expanding armory in this house. But there was already trouble in the marriage aside from Richard's extreme fascination with guns. Hella appeared in public several times with bruises on her face. One of her friends later told police that Hella was physically abused by her husband. This same friend also said that Hella was deeply hurt by the way Richard treated her during her first pregnancy and, quote, she would, also, she would never forgive Richard for what he put her through, end quote. After the children were born, Richard would disappear for days at a time and never say where he was. He would simply pack his bag and leave. Several days later, he would return. Hella never knew if he was away on business or if he was at a gun show or if he was just somewhere else. Since he controlled all the money in the family, he made Hella pay for house expenses while he spent money on anything that he pleased. He bought a variety of landscaping equipment, tractors, mowers, a $25,000 backhoe, which he never used. His front yard was a mishmash of rusting, broken machines and considered an eyesore by his neighbors. It always seems like the Crafts house either needed work or repairs were being done. In 1982, despite his responsibilities with Eastern and his house seemingly in need of constant repair, Crafts became an auxiliary police officer in Newtown. And although he was not paid for his time with the police department, he took this very seriously. He would hang around the police station even when he was off duty and sometimes responded to police calls without authorization. In 1986, he was hired as a police officer in the nearby town of Southbury. His salary was $7 an hour, far beneath his pay as an airline pilot. 
He paid his own way for expensive training seminars and gave instructions on police procedures. Crafts performed his police duties with a strange fervor and even purchased a 1985 Ford Crown Victoria, which is the same type of car that the Connecticut State Police used at this time. He outfitted it at his own cost with multiple radios, antennas, police lights, and a siren. Huh. That is an interesting bit of fanaticism um, and devotion to the Connecticut State Police, uh, especially for $7 an hour. During all this time, from the year he was married right until 1986, Richard considered to see other women. Hella was aware of this infidelity, but tolerated it, perhaps for the sake of the children or maybe just to keep up appearances. But their marriage was in trouble and she knew it. Hella openly spoke about divorce with several of her friends. And in the summer of 1986, she retained a divorce attorney and later hired a private detective who we've discussed earlier, that'd be Keith Mayo, who was a former Connecticut cop, to gather evidence against Richard. So at this point, the police have have launched an investigation because they've gotten information from various sources that more than likely Hella did not just walk away from her life and disappear. So the detectives start by interviewing Don Thomas, who was the au pair, and she told investigators several important details about the way the Crafts household ran. So on the morning of November 19th, Crafts suddenly awoken her at 6 a.m. and said that Hella was driving to his sister's house in Westport and they would meet her there later. Thomas thought that was strange since Newtown had been hit with a severe winter storm during the night and visibility was very poor. Because of the power failure, Richard insisted on taking the children to his sister's house right away. He woke up his three children at 6.30 a.m., loaded them into the family car with Don Thomas, and drove over to his sister's house. Richard dropped off the kids and Don and left almost immediately. When they arrived, Hella was nowhere to be found. She had never shown up at the house. Don told investigators that Richard did not return to pick them up until later that day at 7 p.m. And at no point during the time that they were there did Hella appear at her sister-in-law's home. But keep in mind that she, Richard woke up Don Thomas and said that Hella had left for, their, for her sister-in-law's home, the same place they went, hours before they ever got up. Which was odd. Why would she take a separate car to go there when she could have gotten the children and the au pair, and they could have all gone together. Later that night, when they returned back to the house, Don asked Richard where Hella could be, and Richard replied he didn't know. The next day, she asked the same question of Richard again, and this is when he told her the story that Hella was in Denmark with her sick mother. Don also told investigators that she noticed for the first time that the pieces of carpet were cut out and missing from the master bedroom. Richard told her that he had spilled kerosene on the rug and that they needed to be replaced. This aroused the suspicions of the Newtown police, and they requested that Richard Kraft submit to a lie detector test. I will put in this disclaimer for you here. Um, If you were ever asked to submit to a lie detector test, please note that they are not admissible in court, so it is not necessarily an indication that you are guilty or innocent. Guilty people have passed lie detector tests and innocent people have failed lie detector tests because they were so anxiety written or scared or might have felt guilt about someone's disappearance, even though they weren't the person that actually made them disappear. So 
the best advice I can always give you is regardless of what the police say. And again, I'm not anti-police, but as a person who has been researching these things, if the police ever ask you to take a lie detector test or want to speak to you without a lawyer, absolutely not. You get a lawyer and you decline to take any type of lie detector test if you have not done anything. You do not have to help the police, even if you didn't do anything. If you feel inclined to do so and you think that you can give them information that will help them find the person quickly, absolutely do that. But if you are a suspect, you don't have to say anything to incriminate yourself. And I certainly would suggest against it. And a lie detector test is one of those things that absolutely is unnecessary. Anyway, and I say this because um, Richard Crafts agreed to take the lie detector test and he passed the test on December 4th. And even though polygraph examinations are inadmissible as evidence in court, they are sometimes a useful tool for investigators. But since Kraft passed the test, it had the opposite effect on the Newtown detectives. One investigator wrote in his report that, quote, based on the polygraph examination and numerous conversations with Mr. Kraft, he does not know where his wife is, end quote. Despite the results of the test, however, some detectives believed otherwise. There we go. There was something odd about a professional airline pilot who liked to play cop part-time, who rode around in a phony police car and took jobs as a security guard for a few dollars an hour. Detectives also listened to Hella's friends who constantly called demanding to know the progress of the investigation. Statements from Don Thomas, Lula Johansson, and, other, and others cast serious doubt on Richard Kraft's story of his wife's disappearance. Kraft's behavior since November 19th had been, at the very least, questionable and unusual, but there was no direct evidence that anything criminal had happened to Hella. She simply had vanished. So the police decided to call Richard Kraft's back for another interview. On December 11th, the investigators located Kraft's on duty at the Southbury Police Department where he was working the night shift. Newtown detectives called Southbury and asked that they send over Officer Kraft for further questioning. He arrived at the detective division in full uniform at 9.20 at night, and Lieutenant Michael DeJoseph and Detective Robert Zarvik had already prepared some questions and conducted the interview. According to police reports, this is how the interview progressed. Quote, Richard, did you know that your wife hired a police investigator? Richard says, no. Did you know that the PI had documented your relationship with the New Jersey woman? Richard answers, no. Then he's asked, why would your wife tell her friends that she was afraid for herself regarding serving you divorce papers and tell them to check on her if something happened? Richard answers, I cannot imagine her saying this. It is completely out of character for her to say this. On November 18th, when Hella came home, when and why did she leave? To which Richard Kraft responds, those answers are in my statement. What is the story of your bedroom rug? Apparently you removed it or cut pieces out of it. Can you explain this to me? Richard answers, all the rugs in the house are being removed and replaced. What spilled on the rug in your bedroom? Richard answers, kerosene. Did you cut the pieces out of your rug? Richard responds, yes. Two feet at a time, it's easier to remove that way. He's asked, what did you do with the rug that you took out of your bedroom? Richard responds, I dumped the bedroom rug in the Newtown landfill one week ago. It was blue in color. 
Question, why have you been telling everyone different things about Hella being missing, like her mother being sick? Richard replies, I didn't want to say my wife was gone and I did not know where she was. Richard responds, or Richard is asked, has Hella received any mail since she's been missing? He says, no, she has gotten no letters since she left. She usually gets about two letters a week. Whatever the police ask, Richard Crafts had an answer. His demeanor seemed cooperative yet guarded. Again, he was not caught in any outright lies. They were more like half-truths. And for a man whose wife had suddenly and inexplicably vanished, Richard Crafts seemed rather apathetic. He was relieved from, released from providing the cops with a brief one-page statement that was less than helpful. Detectives were left with even more questions than before, but they were becoming convinced that whatever happened to Helen Nielsen Crafts, somehow and in some way, Richard Crafts had something to do with it. We're back. So, at this point, the police are doubting really everything that Richard Crafts is saying. Like, they obviously, as I said before, have not caught him any outright lies, right? They, they, have, they don't have anything to prove that he's lying about any of the things he's told them. Just a gut feeling that something's off. And so Keith Mayo, well, are back with him now. Our private investigator is, is very unhappy because he's still not heard from Hella and he immediately thought that Richard was responsible. And so he met with his friends and attorneys and solicited their opinions on the case. And after a review of the events surrounding Hella's disappearance and Richard's rather apathetic reaction to it, they too agreed that he was acting in a suspicious manner, and they could not really understand why Richard would offer so many explanations about what happened to Hella. Mayo decided that he needed evidence to convince the police, who really seemed unenthusiastic about the case, because they really did not have any evidence or any other suspects. So when he learned that Crafts had cut pieces of the bedroom rug out and discarded them at the local dump, Keith Mayo decided to search for the pieces which he felt could contain blood evidence. So with the help of a local trash pickup crew, Mayo was able to ascertain the Newtown's garbage was deposited in the Canterbury dump, which was about two hours east of Newtown. He recruited a few helpers, and for the next several days, he searched through mountains of trash at the dump. Knee-deep in household garbage, the team searched through a seemingly endless stream of refuse that had them gagging and cursing. But they succeeded in locating a portion of the rug that was nearly identical to the rug at the Crafts residence. Mayo was sure it was the missing piece, and the rug also had stains that appeared to be human blood. The article was taken to the State Police Laboratory in Meriden, led by one of the county's most foremost forensic scientists, Dr. Henry C. Lee. In the meantime, the press had finally caught wind of the story of the missing suburban housewife. And on November 17th, the Danbury News Times published the first story on the case under the headline, Police Seek Missing Newtown Woman. At this point, we consider this to be a missing persons case, Newtown Police Chief Lewis Marchese told reporters. But Keith Mayo told the same reporter, I don't think she disappeared on her own accord. He also challenged Newtown Police when he said, I'm concerned they are going after this piecemeal. Pressure was building for tangible results on the case, and the Newtown police were being criticized on several fronts, and the state's attorney offices wanted jurisdiction handed over to the state police. But the investigation received another setback when Dr. Lee reported his findings on Mayo's drug samples from the Canterbury dump. After four hours of back-breaking work carried out on the carpet, Dr. Lee, none of the stains tested positive for blood. 
Mayo's dogged pursuit of evidence, however, had another and unanticipated result. It focused on even more attention on the case, which seemed to be floundering at the hands of the Newtown police. Hella's friends also kept up a nonstop campaign of calling the police for updates on the investigation. As a result, the state attorney's office decided that the investigation should be handled in total by the state police investigators. Detectives from the Western District Major Crimes Unit began to look deeper into Kraft's activities immediately before Hella's disappearance. They pulled his credit card purchases and phone records for the months prior to November 19th. On his MasterCard credit bills, investigators found several interesting purchases. On November 13th, Krauss bought a large-capacity Westinghouse freezer at an appliance store in Danbury. He paid $375 for it and picked it up at the store on November 17th. During the same billing period, detectives noticed that he rented some type of machinery at Darien Rentals, which generated a charge of $900. What did Richard Kraft need with such an outsized freezer in his house, they wondered, and what type of machinery costs so much money to rent? In the police world, working Christmas Day is something that nearly every cop tries to avoid. But in Newtown, December 25th, 1986, was special significance. For days, police put together a search warrant for the Kraft's residence at 5 Newfield Lane. In the 11-page affidavit, Detective Quartero and Byrne listed dozens of supporting facts to strengthen their belief as why a search should be conducted at the Kraft's home. Prominent among these reasons was Richard Kraft's ever-changing statements to Hella's friends concerning her disappearance and his actions on the night of November 19th. He had even told one friend that Hella was in the Canary Islands with her best friend, Helen Dixon. Without offering any speculation as to what happened to Hella, detectives were able to say that based on their experience and training, that crimes of violence involve a struggle, a break, the use of weapons and other instrumentalities, and or the element of unpredictability. That the person participating in the commission of a violent offense is in contact with physical surroundings in a forceful or otherwise detectable manner. The traces may be left in the form of blood, fluids and secretions, hair fibers, fingerprints, and palm prints, and a a long list of other possibilities. The central requirement of any search warrant is to show that probable cause exists and to believe that evidence or contraband can be found at a specified location. But it was the final sentence of the affidavit that dispelled any doubts about what the police were thinking. Quote, that based upon the foregoing facts and information, Detective Cortero wrote, the affiants have probable cause to believe and do believe that evidence of murder will be found within and upon the premise of 5 Newfield Lane. End quote. Police discovered that Richard Crafts has taken his children to Florida for the holidays, and they decided it was an opportune time to execute their search warrant. Dr. Henry, Henry Lee agreed to be present and oversee the collection of evidence. And on the afternoon of Christmas Day, a team of state police investigators and crime scene technicians descended upon the premise of 5 Newfield Lane through a back window. What they found was an empty home in complete disarray. Furniture was strewn about, dirty clothes lay everywhere, dishes and kitchen utensils were unwashed in the sink and on countertops, mattresses lay on the bare floor in the living room, along with boxes of toys and other items. The carpets were already pulled up and discarded. A freezer was located and searched. There was no body inside. What detectives did not realize at the time, however, that the freezer they searched was actually the craft's 
old freezer. The new one, which Richard had purchased on November 17th, had already been removed and later discarded. During the search, dozens of weapons were located and tagged because any one of these guns could have been what killed Hella Crafts. And for the next few days, the search team went over every inch of the Crafts' home and eventually seized 108 pieces of evidence according to the search warrant inventory. Evidence included several Smith & Wesson 357 revolvers, 38 caliber revolvers, a Colt Python, 38 caliber pistols, a Ruger carbine rifle, finished semi-automatic weapons, 12-gauge pump shotguns, Winchester rifles, Beretta handguns with clips, 380 automatic handgun, two hand grenades, a Beretta crossbow, a Walther PPK handgun, two 9mm semi-automatic handguns, a Heckler Koch 45 caliber pistol, over-under style universal shotgun, numerous clips, and assortments of ammunition. <sighs> what a mouthful. The quantity and extent of the arsenal inside the house astounded the search team. Also seized were hand towels, washcloths, fiber samples, and a king-size mattress with the bedding. Dr. Lee performed a luminol test in various locations throughout the house, which tested positive for the presence of blood. Quote, of course, we are looking for any evidence of someone attempting to dispose of a corpse, he later wrote in the book Cracking Cases. Some of the seized towels also later tested positive for blood in the state laboratory. Further, the blood was type O positive, which was the same as Hella's. So just to point out, this was 1986. So they did not have the forensic capability to do much besides tell that it was human blood and tell what type of blood it was. But they could not do like DNA to know definitively that it was Hella's, which is why this is why they just say that it's O positive and that that matches the type. But despite the mountain of weapons and evidence seized, cops still had no viable answer to the most important question of all. Where was Hella Crafts? Well, things happened very quickly over that next week. Investigators learned that the $900 charge on the Crafts MasterCard at Darien Rentals was payment for a wood chipper. Crafts had rented and picked up a very large wood chipper called a brush bandit on November 19th and apparently used it to chip a quantity of wood. At this point, detectives began to think the unthinkable. Then on the afternoon of December 30th, 1986, detectives Patrick McCafferty and T.K. Brown, members of the Western District Major Crime Squad, located Joseph Hine, the utility man from Southbury who was plowing the snow on River Road during the storm. They listened to the story I told you earlier in the show about observing a wood chipper in a U-Haul parked on the side of the road. Detectives drove Mr. Hine over to the shores of the Houstonic River just outside of Southbury. Hine pointed to the exact spot where he observed the truck towing the wood chipper in an area of the river known as Lake Zor. Detectives saw piles of wood chips along the banks of the river, and there seemed to be small pieces of green plastic substance strewn about and intermingled with the chips. Detective Brown got down on his hands and knees and sifted through some of the material. There was a cold wind coming in off the river, and the skies looked ready for more snow. The detective noticed some scraps of shredded paper partially discovered by debris. He managed to find a few small pieces of mail. And through a little plastic cellophane window on an envelope, he could plainly read the name and address. Miss Hella L. Crafts, 5 Newtown, Newfield Lane, Newtown, Connecticut. He shouted to his partner, 
quote, something's definitely wrong here, end quote. Within the hour, a search team from police headquarters descended upon the scene. Every inch of the ground was gone over at least twice as the team photographed each piece of evidence that was removed from the site. Several additional envelopes bearing Hella's name were located within this hour. They found numerous strands of blonde hair, bone fragments, fabric, cloth, plastic items, wood chips, and many fragments of unidentifiable material. Every piece of material, no matter how small, would have to go undergo scientific analysis in the State Police Forensic Laboratory in Meriden. As I knew from my past experience, writes Dr. Lee in Cracking Cases, quote, we would have to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that those were the remains of Hella Crafts and that she was murdered. Otherwise, there had been no homicide and thus Richard Crafts would not be charged, end quote. Soon, detectives responded to the rental agency in nearby Darien where Crafts rented the wood chipper machine. They secured copies of the agreement, and luckily, the exact machine was in the rear parking lot of the rental shop. It was towed to the state, poli state police forensic lab where it could be examined for additional evidence. In the meantime, the difficult work at Legazor continued. For days, detectives and police diving teams searched the crime scene area at least one mile in both directions from the site. The Houstonic River was extremely cold, and it was too cold for divers to stay in for long. Police obtained permission to lower the water level by restricting flow at the power dam upriver. Divers located a steel chain embedded in the muddy bottom of the river. The serial number had been filed off, but it seemed to have only been in the water for a short time. This discovery renewed the hopes of police teams and they continued the, the back-breaking job of searching in the bitter cold for almost two weeks. Days later, their labors were rewarded once again. One detective discovered a piece of a human toe and shortly afterwards, a fragment of finger found and then a part of a tooth. Police slowed through the river mud that was knee-deep, trembling from the cold and the icy waters of the river, but still they pushed on. And in the end, Dr. Lee said, quote, our team's efforts at Lake Zor eventually led to the discovery of 2,660 strands of wand hair, 69 slivers of human bone, five droplets of human blood, two teeth, a truncated piece of human skull, three ounces of human tissue, a portion of a human finger, one fingernail, and one portion of toenail, end quote. Hella Crafts had been found. On January 11th, an arrest warrant was issued in Newtown, Connecticut for Richard Crafts. It was the culmination of weeks of intensive and exhausting police work. That same night at about 9 p.m., a dozen Connecticut state troopers and detectives responded to 5 Newfield Lane to arrest Richard Crafts. They surrounded the phone and called Crafts, surrounded the house and called Crafts on the phone. He was ordered to come outside the home and surrender. His response? I'm tired. I'll take care of it in the morning. When police insisted that he come out immediately, Crafts became angry. Don't call me back, he shouted and hung up. After a nail-biting series of phone calls and promises of surrender which were never fulfilled, Crafts agreed to come outside. His children were still inside the house asleep. And at 12.30 a.m., Crafts told the cops over the phone, I'll be out in five minutes. A short time later, a distraught and disheveled Crafts emerged and surrendered to the police. And after arraignment in nearby Danbury Court, 
He was taken to the Bridgeport Jail facility to await further developments. His bail was set at $750,000. In the meantime, investigators continued the grim search in the frigid waters at Lake Zora. The press descended upon the scene with TV cameras and microphones and huge lights and a fleet of broadcast trucks. And before the day was over, the entire nation knew the story of the man who may or may not have killed his wife by freezing her body and running it through a wood chipper. It's like something out of Edgar Allan Poe, one Newtown resident told reporters. Another expressed surprise it would happen in the serene surroundings of suburban Connecticut. Quote, I'm kind of shocked that it would happen in Newtown of all places, quote. One of Kraft's neighbors said, but the police had worked out a probable scenario of how Kraft's killed his wife. Since drops of Hella's bedroom were found in her bedroom, Hella's blood were found in her bedroom, they assumed that she was probably bludgeoned at the foot of the bed during the early hours of November 19th, perhaps when she was making the bed or changing the sheets. Police speculated that Kraft's then carried his wife's body to the basement where he had recently hooked up the brand new freezer he had purchased. He placed her inside the freezer and then woke up Don Thomas, the au pair. He told her they should all go to his sister's house in Westport because Newtown had suffered a power failure. When Thomas asked about Hella, Kraft said that she would meet them at the sister's house. They then drove to Westport, and after dropping the kids off and the au pair, Richard immediately left to go back home. Police believe that sometime during the day, he took Hella's body by then frozen solid to a secluded piece of property that he owned in Newtown. There it is believed that he used the steel chainsaw on her body to make several smaller parcels of her remains and then return them to the freezer. The next day, under the cover of darkness, Kraft took these smaller packages wrapped in plastic garbage bags to Lake Sore where he ran them through this industrial wood chipper. Because of the time factors involved, police speculated that when Joseph Hines saw the U-Haul and the wood chipper along the road, Kraft had pretty much already finished his gruesome work. He was parked along River Road because he was either running fresh wood through the wood chipper to clean it or was getting rid of evidence. What Kraft did not know at the time, that as the machine cast pieces of his wife into the river, some parts didn't quite make it to the water. And small fragments of her bones, strands of hair, broken teeth, and some mail which Hella, which it had placed in her pocket the day of her death, fell to the ground. During the, due to the overwhelming publicity of the case, the trial of Richard Crafts was moved to New London, Connecticut. Some newspapers dwelled on the sensational aspect of the killing, which was sure to affect the opinion of potential jurors in the Newtown area. One New York City paper, the Daily News, published a highly inflammatory front page on the day Crafts was arrested. Chopped to pieces was the headline in big bold print on January 14th of 1987. The prosecution, led by state attorney Walter Flanagan, put on a virtual army of expert forensic witnesses on the stand. Dr. Henley Lee testified that the collection and analysis of thousands of pieces of evidence found in and around Lake Zor. Although only minute quantities of bone and tissue were found, there was still a wealth of information to be gleaned from these items. And Dr. Lee was able to determine that 65 pieces of bone were cut with heavy duty, a heavy type cutting edge that produced a crushing and cutting force. He said the bone, human tissue, fibers, and hair were all mixed together with wood chips and vegetative debris, but most importantly, the same machine cut all of it. One of the most damaging pieces of evidence offered at trial, and there were many, was that the chainsaw recovered at the bottom of the river during the search on December 30th. This item was a steel chainsaw with the serial number filed off. 
but technicians were able to find remnants of human tissue, blonde hair, and a number of blue fibers in the teeth of the blade. The blue fibers matched the rug inside the craft's home. The forensic lab at Meriden was able to restore the serial number even though it was heavily damaged. It matched a receipt belonging to Richard Crafts, indicating that he had purchased the chainsaw on January 9th of 1981 and paid roughly $644 for it. But detectives didn't find the receipt during the search of his home. Keith Mayo gave the receipt to the police. When Hella Crafts first hired Mayo, she gave him a box of personal papers belonging to Richard. And ironically, the receipt was found amongst those papers. However, it was the forensic odontology analysis that was able to produce, prove conclusively that Helicraft's remains were found at Lake Zor. During the search, two pieces of human teeth were retrieved from the water. One specimen was a tiny fragment of tooth with a piece of jawbone still attached. Dr. Constantine P. Cazolis, a forensic odontologist, testified that the tooth was removed from the mouth with traumatic force that sheared it off and took the bone with it. Further, he said that if a dentist had removed the tooth, the base of the tooth would be clean and absent any jawbone residue. Quote, in my opinion, Carzula said, this fracture occurred by blunt force, then fractured it to the center line and took the jaw with it, end quote. The second tooth specimen was even more interesting, said Dr. Carzulis. It was only part of the tooth, but it still had a metal crown attached. After the search, Kazulis took several hundred x-rays of the recovered tooth from all positive angles. Using a series of five sets of x-rays that were taken from Helicraft's teeth between 1980 and 1986, he performed a painstaking comparison between the evidence and the images of Hella's teeth. Karzulis said that the recovered tooth at Lake Zor perfectly matched Hella's lower left bicuspid in the x-ray charts. He said that he was medically absolutely certain of the positive comparison. The prosecution backed up Dr. Zakoulis' testimony with another odontologist, Dr. Lowell Levine. A forensic scientist from the New York State Police, Levine had helped identify the remains of Nazi Dr. Joseph Mengele in 1985 and also confirmed for the U.S. Congress that the body buried in the U.S. Washington, D.C. memorial was in fact President John F. Kennedy. Dr. Levine agreed with Dr. Zarkoulis and an all-important tooth with the attract, attached crown. Quote, the tooth, the lower left second bicuspid, quote, he said in dramatic tones, belonged to Helicraft when she was alive. It was a crushing blow to the defense. The case went before the jury on June 23rd. And for the next two weeks, nine men and three women tried to reach a verdict. But one man whose stubbornness and illogical interpretations of the evidence exasperated the rest of the jury had out, held out for a not guilty verdict. One of the jurors remembers and says that it was like, quote, reasoning with a child. He had really he had real difficulty retaining. Another jurist named Janice Rosal was even more blunt. She says it wasn't chaos. It was hell. Although other jurors tried in vain to convince the lone holdout, in the end, he simply refused to participate any further. And on July 15th of 1988, after 100 witnesses had testified and 650 exhibits, exhibits were presented in an epic 53-day trial, a mistrial had been declared. Richard Crafts would have another chance at freedom. 
The mistrial was a bitter disappointment, not only for Hella Kraft's family, but for the team of pol police investigators and forensic scientists that had worked so hard and diligently on the case since December of 1986. Dr. Lee told reporters, quote, we worked for the first three months, day and nights, and subsequently off and on for almost a year and a half. However, a new trial was quickly agreed upon. And again, due to the avalanche of publicity concerning the gruesome details of the case, the venue was changed to Norwalk, Connecticut. And on September 7th of 1989, the second trial of Richard Crafts opened under a cloud of uncertainty. Prosecutors were well aware that the conviction in any criminal case, no matter how persuasive the evidence may be, is never guaranteed. The second trial was a virtual replay of the first. The same witnesses testified, the same damning evidence implicated Richard Crafts as he sat at the defense table, seemingly unmoved by all of it. Crafts always maintained a detached air about him as if he was preoccupied with other matters. The forensic odontologist testified again to the recovered dental items and witnesses testified to Richard Crafts' behavior, both and before and after Hella's disappearance. And the unflappable Dr. Lee returned to explain the remaining evidence to the jury. When the case finally went to jury on November 20th, it only took eight hours to reach a unanimous verdict. Crafts was found guilty of murder. Eleven men and one woman felt the evidence easily supported a guilty verdict. Quote, Richard Crafts could not have asked for a more, a more fair jury, end quote. It's corny, but the system works. As usual, Crafts showed no emotion when the verdict was announced. The totality of the evidence was overwhelming, another juror told the Danbury News Times. The verdict was announced November 21st, 1989, almost three years to the day when Hella Craft was murdered. In January 1990, Richard Crafts, unrepentant and defiant as always, received a sentence of 99 years in state penitentiary. State Attorney Flanagan told the press afterwards, 23 or 24 people were convinced that he was guilt guilty beyond question. That's a pretty good standard of proof. Isn't. So that is the story of the disappearance of Hella Crafts and her murder um, at the hands of her husband, Richard Crafts. Um, please tell me what you think about the story. Um, I just wanted to come back in and give you an update. So Richard Crafts went to jail three years after Hella Crafts' disappearance and murder, and that was in 1989. He was sentenced to like a 50 to 99 year sentence under the Connecticut state laws at that time. So Richard Crafts actually ended up serving roughly a, about 35-ish years, give or take, maybe 30, I think 34 um, years. Uh, so in June of 2020, Richard Crafts um, at the time was 87 and he was released from prison. Um, a lot of it was because he was deemed to not be a danger to the community at 87 years old and also um, for good behavior. So I don't know if I consider, you know, 30 years in prison to be justice for a woman that you murdered and put through a wood chipper. And her three children had to grow up without her and her family and friends who, who missed her and were adamant about the fact that she didn't just park her car in a, a Pan Am parking lot at the Kennedy Airport and just fly away to a new life. Um, so that's always difficult for me because I just, I don't know. I, I, I guess at 87 years old, 
he spent a bevy of time behind bars and that should be enough. But with anything, regardless of what the sentencing is, it, it's not going to bring this woman back, right? Like her children still grew up without her family and friends are still without her and missing her, you know, who, whoever's left that remembers her. And that's just a sad place to be in it. it you know, anytime anyone's murdered, it doesn't bring them back because the person goes to jail. That's just what our society has deemed as justice. And I, I don't ever know for sure if I feel like it, it's truly justice in that sense, because nothing is ever going to bring these people back and nothing is ever going to atone for the fact that they don't get those years. Even though that person is in jail and they have to think about it, who's to say that they ever think about it besides being mad that they get caught? Up until the end, Richard Crafts was defiant and petulant, and he didn't seem interested in the fact that his wife was gone or missing. And at no point did anyone say that he ever shed a tear for his missing wife. So it's difficult to believe that even after all this time, he has any remorse for what he did to Hella Crafts. And that is the most difficult part to deal with in these cases. So most of my research for this story came from forensic files so um if you're a forensic files watcher like me and it's something that i still watch today i love the old episodes as much as one can love true crime in a respectful manner forensic files the disappearance of hella crafts is from season one episode one that is right is the very first pilot episode of forensic files to ever air so a lot of my research came from there and also from the book by Henry C. Lee, um, who I, which I will link um, in the description for you if you would like to read it. It obviously is a bit older book, um, but that is where a lot of my research came from, as well as Murderpedia and then some of it from Wikipedia.com as well. Um, so that is it for this case. Um, I appreciate you guys for hanging there with me. Last couple months have been a little rough, just trying to get back on track with some other things. Um, but we're back. Um, so glad to be here with you. So glad that we can do this together. Um, as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, if you want to talk to me about the show, if you have ideas for a case that you would like to cover, like me to cover on the show, please reach out to me. You can reach me at murdervpod at gmail.com. That is also our handle on Insta as well as on Twitter. It's at murder, V-E-E-P-O-D. Um, you can reach out to me there. I love hearing from you guys. I love talking about cases. Anything that I can do better, worse, you love, you hate, reach out to me, talk to me about it. I love to hear from you guys. Um, I don't think I have anything else. This is going to drop. Um, so when you hear this, it'll be Monday um, and I hope you enjoy it. And I'm so glad to be back with you guys. And again, um, thank you for listening to Murder V Wrote. And as always, I'm your host, V.